If you've been getting a vibe from us throughout the course of this podcast that we don't believe that the creep was acting alone, that he in fact had help, not only in the disposal of his victims' bodies by Cram and Rossi, but possibly much, much more, then you would be spot on. You're about to hear a story from a woman who has asked that we keep her name to ourselves, and we will of course respect her wishes, but the story must be heard. We have vetted it, it's legit, and it certainly does nothing to dissuade us from believing that the creep employed help. So have a listen, come to your own conclusions. This particular story revolves around 19-year-old John Mowry, who had just finished an 18-month tour with the United States Marine Corps, and who had returned home in early 1977. He was last seen by his family in late September. The thing about John was that he was her first boyfriend that was um, reliable, called her on a daily basis. It was consistent. I was always part of what they spoke about because she would then tell me, and I actually could hear what their conversations were if she went to his house or if they went out, she then would always call me right away and let me know what happened. She had also told me that John had told her about his sister having been killed. So their family had uh, a lot of tragedy. John had been the one to find his sister murdered. And um, so that may have been part of the reason why he had he just had a different personality from guys that we knew that were that age. He had more integrity or he had more appreciation for life. Something about him was very special. Well, the Wednesday prior to when John disappeared, so this was now in September. I believe the 27th was a Saturday. So the, the Wednesday prior to that, the 23rd or 24th. I know it was in the middle of the week before he went missing. Virginia calls and tells me that she called John's house and somebody answered the phone and uh, she says, I'm kind of confused. She says, John doesn't have a roommate and John wasn't home and that um, he, he was sounded very weird. And that he was annoyed with her because she woke him up. So later, later that day, she calls John and he says, yeah, I've got uh, somebody staying with me for a few days. I don't even know at that point if she knew that his name was Mike. That Friday, she was at John's house and right away, as soon as she came home, he called me and told me, um, I don't know what's going on, but John has this person living at his house. His name is Mike and he's really weird. He's a very strange person. We didn't really, you know, uh, get into very much about Mike, but all I know is that she was already concerned about this person that all of a sudden is living at John's apartment. So now this is Saturday now. So the very following day after her meeting with Mike for the first time, she calls me and she said, 
I'm kind of scared. I called John and he said he couldn't talk because there had been an accident and he would call me back. And she says, I don't, I don't know what happened. So that night she comes to my house. She says, I don't know what to do. Should I, should I call him? Cause he hasn't called me back. And I kept telling her, yeah, you know, go ahead. There's nothing wrong with you calling him. And then I remembered something that, that she had told me that she overheard Mike saying to John that Friday, she overheard Mike telling John, come on, man, you've got to meet this guy. He, he's going to be going out of town. So like something to the effect of if this is going to happen, you got to do this now. And I said, is there any chance that the reason he's not calling you back is that he went to meet this so-called person? And she says, oh, yeah, that could be. The next day, we still hadn't heard from John. So she, at that point, getting more worried that he lost interest in her as opposed to something having happened to him. So she did not want to uh, look for him or call him or anything like that. Well, of course, later on, we come to find out that he still was alive because he had had dinner at his mother's house. And that was the last time anyone had seen him alive. So this was the 28th. Monday comes along and now she's feeling, you know, like, I I don't get this. This is not like him at all. Maybe something did happen to him. So I said, you know what, let's go take a walk. His apartment was probably a 20 minute walk from from us. So it was sometime in the evening and we walk to the apartment. Mike answers the door. I come to, I realize it's Mike. The first thing we said is, where's John? And he goes, you know, I, I don't know. He invites us into the apartment and we're sitting across from him. And the only thing we wanted was to find out what he knew about John and where he was. And he seemed so uninterested in anything that had to do with John. Every time we would say, just, you know, when's the last time you saw him or any question, he he became very agitated. He then, you know, acted like this was a social visit between him and us. And we just continuously kept trying to change the, the subject going back to John and why is he missing? So he, the whole night that we're there, I mean, we were there for quite some time. First, he tells us um, that he was staying there because he had been locked up. We didn't even ask him what he meant by that. We just assumed he had been in jail. No clue uh, about that. He had told us that he worked for a contractor out of his home, and he also drove a cab part-time. He was just rambling about himself, and he started he starts giggling and says, I drive around in areas, or there's a place or places where there's dead bodies that nobody knows about. So Virginia and I kind of pinch each other, like, let's get the heck out of here. This guy is really weird. All I know is we were not comfortable with him 
we were like, okay, that guy's nuts. And we still don't know where John is. We were very upset and very frustrated at the same time because we knew this guy all of a sudden enters John's life. He's living in his apartment just for a few days. And now John is missing. And that was very troubling to us. But we did not know what to do. The next day, Virginia gets a phone call from Mike. And he said, uh, I found your phone number uh, in John's things. And because we definitely would not have given him our numbers. He invited us to come back to the house uh, because he was going to help us get a job with this person that he works for. We actually went back to the apartment. We were foolish and sitting with him again. Um, we're getting nowhere as far as finding out anything about John. Virginia said, you know, maybe it's time we call the police. He's missing. And he said, don't call the police. Whatever you do, don't call the police. And we we're like, well, why? And he said, uh, well, you know, uh, this, this would be really hard uh, on his mother. You know, she already lost the daughter. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> he, he's missing. But anyway, we, we were just um, kind of grasping for anything. So I guess that's why we went. We found out that the call that uh, Virginia had with John that previous Saturday when he said, there's been an accident, I have to go and hung up right away. One of his dogs was hit by a car and killed. So now he had one remaining dog. And Mike asked us if either one of us wanted to take his dog. And we thought that was a really, really bad sign because according to Mike, oh, he's probably just went somewhere, he's coming back, and yet he's trying to give away his dog. It doesn't, you know, the two don't add up. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 19. The wheels of justice turn slowly. The holidays have arrived and Chicago remains in a deep state of shock as the dig at the Creeps residence has really just gotten underway. As of the 23rd of December, four bodies have been uncovered. And at the close of business, Police Chief Dobbs shuts down the dig over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Gacy is now sitting in the not-so-cozy confines of the Cook County Jail. Well, actually, Cermak Memorial Hospital, which is a jail hospital. So it's better than jail itself, but not any place that any of us would want to spend our holidays. So with that, the men of the Delta Unit are given the wonderful gift of being able to celebrate the holidays with their respective families, without having to worry about following Gacy's every move. Moreover, all these cops have been anointed heroes by the media as they have captured the monster. So it was a happy holiday season, indeed, for all of them, except for one man. 
Now, Joe Kozenczak simply viewed the holidays as nothing more than lost time in the search for Rob P's body. It was universally understood that for the next couple of days, the Gacy case would be shelved until the 26th of December, when both the state and the defense would start the criminal case in earnest. As for me personally, I don't have much recollection of what my holiday season was like as far as seeing my father or spending much time with him during that particular Christmas break. But my grandmother would have picked up the slack as she was always my rock in guiding me through my parents' divorce. I had the great fortune of not living with my father or in Chicago when my dad landed the Gacy case. And I say great fortune because kids can be cruel and I imagine I would have been treated to a tough couple of years had I lived in Illinois during the trial, as the public typically doesn't look fondly upon defense attorneys that defend monsters, and that probably extends to their kids. Now, based on everything that I have told you about the importance of the role of a defense attorney over the course of this season, it's my hope moving forward that you will look at defense attorneys in a different light. But back then, I wouldn't have had either the time or the wherewithal to try to explain the nuances of defense work to a bunch of 10-year-olds that were only interested in relaying the ugly shit that they had overheard their parents say about the two men who signed on to represent the creep. You have to understand that there was not a day that went by for months after the arrest that Gacy wasn't the lead story on the evening news or on the front page of the newspaper there would have been nowhere for me to hide. Had I gone through that then, I may be in a very different place right now. I don't know if that's true, but I'm relieved that I never had to find out. John, they've, uh, I've explained to you, they've uncovered a body. They say it was under the area that the dining room table was, and he started to explain to me, um, well, let me ask you, was that area uh, under the place where the dining room table was accessible by way of the crawl space? No. Now, do you recall uh, if that floor was ever up, if you had ever removed the floor, what type of work were you doing? I'm not sure. We, tore, we took all the tile off the floor when we recarpeted. Now, when you say we, who are you talking about? Michael Rossi. I don't know if David Graham was there, but Michael Rossi was there. And we were talking about taking up the, uh, the floor. Would you describe exactly uh, which floor you're talking about, John? Okay, well... Or which room? So the, the, the living room. The back room of the house. Mm -hmm. The largest room of the house. 22 by 16. The floor was spongy, and what I did rather than pull out the floor, whoever built it didn't, didn't cross-break the joist. Okay, in doing so, the floor was spongy in the center. In other words, if you jumped on it, the whole floor, floor would vibrate. Uh, around, I think, 76. 1976, I put a new floor in. By doing this, I cross braces. In other words, the joists were running from the north to the south, and I, I put uh, two by four joists at 16 inches apart, and I ran them from the east to the west, going across the floor in the other direction. 
On top of that, I put a layer of, uh, I believe it was two quarter inch plywood. And on top of that, we put on uh, carpeting. Like carpeting. When that floor was up, you remember burying anybody down there? The floor was never taken out. This is in the living room. How the hell did a body get under the section they're talking about? You're talking about the dining room. Yeah. I, I'm leading up to the dining okay. room. I'm in, I'm in the living room. All right. All right, so we, we recarpeted it, and uh, the step-off was only approximately a couple of inches. Before we put the floor in, step-off, you'd step off from the dining room into the living room. You'd step down approximately six and a half inches, seven inches. It was a step that everybody kept falling over. Because they didn't realize, you know, you stepped off like that when you came from the dining room to the living room. So I thought it would alleviate the problem by raising the floor. I raised the floor, recovered it. But in doing so, from the dining room side, the two air vents that went into the living room floor were at, at that six-inch level of where that step is. In fact, it came out right where the step was. So... We, we took the tile and stuff off of the floor in the dining room. When I say we, that was done by uh, Rossi, Michael Rossi, and I think Rick, Randy Stewart. Anyhow, we took that out and... Is Randy Stewart alive? To the best of my knowledge, yeah. He lives on Higgins, so there he is. The reason I ask is in one of the statements that I read, you mentioned that somebody that's dead may be named Randy. I did. Or David. Well, when we get to the statements, I'll point it out to you. Go ahead. So you're, you're when that dining room floor was up, remove the floor. Michael Rossi then proceeded to put, uh, well, all we did was we pulled the ductwork out of the, the sidewalk and made it come up through the to the floor. Did you have to remove the, the floor paneling? The dining yeah. room? With the floor paneling, how That's long did the whole job take? Yeah. Uh, I think Rocky took one day to do it. Just one? The floor was only up one day? Well, maybe two days, but I don't think. Uh, yeah, it might have been out two days. All right. The floor was torn apart for more than one day, yeah. I'm assuming it's two days or maybe longer, and that period of time to bring anybody back to your house. Not that I know. Do you recall what day, month of 76 this was that you lifted the uh, dining room floor? I, I would think that it was in 77, early 77. Was it a benefit off the corporation? Did you use corporate materials? And well, we used material. So it would be yeah. a, a record in the corporate book or not? No. Okay. So let's head back to the house on Somerdale. The excavation of the crawl resumes on the 26th. The crowd outside of the residence continues to grow as the gruesome site has become a tourist attraction of sorts, consisting of locals and the media. Genty and Humbert and the rest of the Cook County evidence techs assigned to the dig are back at it at 8.45 a.m. on the day after Christmas. Nice way to wrap up Christmas, huh? Brutal. The fifth body was recovered in a shallow grave located a couple of feet below the grave of body number one. Only three inches of dirt covered that victim. The remains were clothed in a light-colored cloth, long-sleeved shirt or jacket and dark pants. 
Inside the mouth of victim number five, cloth material was found. This was a new discovery. It appears the creep was learning, and also found in the mouth was a small piece of folded paper. The recovered piece of paper was turned over to the Maybrook Police Photo Lab where it was processed. Ultimately, the piece of paper was sent to the Illinois State Crime Lab for analysis. Maybe we'll find out the significance of this potential clue. Maybe we won't. In the interim, body number six was revealed at about 1.30 p.m. No clothing was found on the remains. Body number seven was discovered 45 minutes later, adjacent to body number six. Once again, cloth material was found in the mouth. Now, keep in mind as these remains are exhumed, the men doing the digging are doing the best that they can to make sure that the remains constitute one victim as opposed to multiple victims that may have been stacked on top of one another. This factor is so very important because the seemingly impossible task of identifying the victims lays ahead. And the most effective means by which they had to identify victims in 1978 were dental and medical records, followed closely by personal effects such as jewelry, belt buckles, and articles of clothing that may be able to be identified by the family members. The first step in identifying exactly who these young men are is by doing what the Chicago police failed so miserably in doing for years, which is to look into the boys that have been reported missing over the last six years. By way of the creeps' statements to Albrecht, at the very least, they have a time frame of when Gacy was committing the murders. In addition to compiling the missing persons reports from 72 to 78 from the Chicagoland area, a dedicated tip line was created to field phone calls from family and friends that had young men go missing during those years. Well, I noticed that um, when the case first broke out, I was back on a desk for in, working inside for a few days. And after the case broke, um, the calls were just one after another almost. And it was unbelievable how many calls we were getting across the country from families that uh, had a missing son. And as the media, rightfully or wrongfully, kind of, and I think it was wrong, that actually portrayed a lot of the victims as homosexuals, prostitutes, drugs, or, or whatever it may be. And the calls just almost stopped. Uh, and people didn't want to be associated, I think, with their, their loved one being associated with Casey. And it was totally, you know, untrue. I mean, Rob Peace, the last victim, was just this all-American kid from an all-American family. And there was a lot more of his victims that were the same way. And, you know, maybe his first ones when he started out, and I'm sure Gacy was a little bit uh, worried, especially the first kid that he, he knifed, you know, and then it was uh, all the rest of them were strangled. And uh, I'm sure after he knifed that kid, um, he was worried. You know, he had contacts and all that kind of stuff, but he was kind of concerned. Somebody's going to come knocking on his door, and it never happened. And so all of a sudden he came up with this system of his, and it was all just self-protection, I think, the way he, when he killed him and put him in his crawl space. In the meantime, Bill Kunkel and the state's attorney's office have begun putting their case against Gacy together. And while Kunkel has handled some serious cases in his career, no one from either the state nor the defense had handled a case of this magnitude. The challenges that lay before the state in a case like this are first and foremost to identify who exactly the victims are. And we know that this aspect of the investigation is underway. 
as the bodies are being unearthed and sent to the county morgue to be examined to hopefully determine not only the identities, but the cause of death, and maybe, just maybe, a timeline of when the victim was killed. The problem with the Peast case at the present moment is that they don't have his body. And remember, as of December 26th, Gacy has only been charged with Peast's death. The state can and will prosecute a case where there is no body, but it presents challenges, such as whether or not a murder has actually occurred. You may be saying, well, that may be true, but Gacy has admitted to killing Peast. So why is the body so important? And it's a legit question. The answer, though, is this, that when both the state and the defense have a case land upon their desk, after reviewing the evidence that exists, the state has to immediately determine how they're going to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the defendant committed the crime. The primary focus of that analysis is to determine how they are going to get certain items into evidence because there are rules of evidence that have been established and must be adhered to before the trier of fact gets to see or hear it. It's not a free-for-all in a court of law. And almost everything that you see on your favorite fictionalized TV shows and movies in regards to this aspect of trial work is completely inaccurate, which is a shame because the evidence constitutes the guts of the case. And the greatest legal battles that occur in any trial are those in which the state and the defense are fighting to keep things like physical evidence, witness statements, expert testimony, and confessions from either being introduced or not being introduced at trial. The judge in any trial is the gatekeeper who determines what is and isn't admissible at trial. And as you can imagine, that role is incredibly important in determining which way the trial is going to go. Because the bottom line is this, the judge, not the lawyers, determine what the trier of fact is going to see and hear at trial. When we get to season two of the Defense Diaries, these battles between myself and our defense team and the state were monumental. And you will see how absolutely frustrating it can be for both sides when the judge rules that a crucial piece of evidence is inadmissible, which means that the jury cannot consider it when they are deliberating. So imagine a case like People v. Gacy, which was getting massive amounts of media coverage so much so that the ability to impanel a fair and unbiased jury in Cook County appeared to be a near impossible task, especially for the defense. And the prospective jurors kept hearing about Gacy's confessions on TV and in the paper, and somehow they make it onto the jury, and then never hear any of these confessions at any point during the trial. And they're sitting there thinking, what the hell? What about the confessions? Well. Little does that jury know that the battle to keep those confessions out of evidence took place before the trial, during the motion phase, long before a jury was selected. So jurors in high publicity cases are charged with the seemingly impossible task of not considering things that they may have seen or heard in the news in the months leading up to the trial, yet didn't see or hear at trial when determining a defendant's innocence or guilt. Now, I believe, as the jurors are instructed that they cannot consider anything other than the evidence presented, 
that they will try their very best to ignore what they may otherwise know but can't consider. But subconsciously, that little nugget that they've heard just sits there, most likely swaying their opinion one way or another. After all, we are human. There's an old saying that I like to use in this context, which is, you can't unring a bell. Many trial attorneys will ask questions during a cross-examination that they know will be objected to and will be sustained by the judge, but it gets an important fact into the mind of the jurors that they won't otherwise hear. So the seed is planted. The judge in these situations will usually admonish the jury and tell them that they cannot consider what they just heard, but you can't unring a bell. So Kunkel, while he has a confessions in his hip pocket is the strongest evidence of guilt, and yes, they are stronger than the bodies in the crawl space, must be considering the distinct possibility that those confessions may be suppressed and therefore not available to him at trial for the jury to hear. If that happens, what does he have on Gacy with respect to Rob Peast? If you said only the planted photo receipt, bingo, that's it. That's all he has. And we don't know at this juncture whether or not Kunkel knows that the evidence was planted. We don't believe that he does. Notwithstanding that, he is certainly worried that the forthcoming motions to suppress evidence, which will be attacking the validity of the warrants and what was discovered during the effectuation of those warrants, could be granted by the trial judge, which as you all know, makes the evidence fruit of the poisonous tree and an admissible at trial. So Bill Kunkel, despite how it appears on its face, is not sitting in his office with his feet kicked up on his desk and his arms folded across his chest, smugly smiling about what a slam dunk this case is going to be. No, far from it. Well, here, here's the thing about that, and uh, you'll appreciate it. Uh, it's hard to get a layman to understand it sometimes, but you'll appreciate it instantly. The thing is, uh, first of all, in this case, he didn't like the insanity defense. And we knew that from the beginning. And number two, he always wanted to put himself in a position of believing that he was manipulating everyone, including his attorneys, I would assume. And, uh, for example, he was offered a free defense by F. Lee Bailey, and he had no interest whatsoever. Uh, he didn't want a stranger. He wanted, he knew Sam through Stevens, you know, and, and he wanted some level of control. And as you know, it he exploded in that bit where he had the, the, he wanted out of the hearing of the jury, he wanted to talk to Garippo about changing the defense in the middle of the trial. And of course, again, Garippo, in his brilliant way, got him to admit that his attorneys were doing the only thing they could do, and he, they were doing the right thing, and they were doing it well, and et cetera, et cetera, and he ultimately agreed on the record, and that was the end of that. Uh, but he always had his own uh, favorite, uh, somebody else did it, uh, alibi, I was out of town, blah, blah, blah. And I uh, wasn't that fond of it. So one of the reasons that we would focus very heavily on, yeah, he did it, it anyway, is that 
again, particularly if he testified, he was probably going to deny it himself. Uh, now the judge might give the jury an instruction that they would ignore that, but he would probably do it. That was my view. So anyway, that was one reason. The other reason is, ultimately in an insanity defense uh, in, in Texas and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi, uh, prosecutors don't even get an expert. Just the jury just aren't going to care about an insanity defense. Uh, that may not be true anymore. That was true 50 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever. But in any event, in Illinois, I don't think that's the case. And I didn't at that time. And so what we wanted simply was a standoff. And juries, even in Illinois, aren't particularly enamored of the insanity defense. But we had, if I remember correctly, four or five jurors that had either personally received psychiatric therapy or had family members that had. And, you know, were inclined to be interested in hearing what they had to say. So, uh, you know, our approach was, uh, yeah, we're going to have experts and we're going to do it seriously. But ultimately what happens is a jury either totally disregards both sides' experts or basically if the state does its job, at most they're going to come up with a standoff. And what you're then back to is their own analysis of the facts as to whether the person was intentional and planning and plotting and knowing and aware that it was conduct uh, contrary to the law. And so you're, you want to put on a case in chief and in rebuttal uh, that, that makes the facts also support uh, sanity. And uh, so we were, you know, probably very close to being with the same detail uh, with respect to proving that he did it that we would have been if the defense had been an alibi. Meanwhile, the defense team has begun drafting motions, and they are actively trying to secure the services of both psychiatrists and psychologists to evaluate their client not just to determine whether he is legally insane, but first and foremost, to determine if he is competent to stand trial. The first motion that's typically filed by any defense attorney is a motion to reduce or modify bond conditions. And as you are aware, Gacy was denied bond. So the defense, in particular my father, is preparing a motion to have the judge reconsider his decision to deny Gacy bond. Now, you are all smart folks out there, what do you think the odds of the motion to set a bond amount being granted are? Zero percent? Right. Welcome to the wonderful world of being a defense attorney. You're probably wondering why then do you file a motion that you know has a zero chance of being granted? And the answer is this, to perfect the appellate record. Remember, the trial is only the beginning of a case. The appeals process, if the defendant is found guilty, goes on for years after the trial. So one of the most important functions of a defense attorney at trial is to preserve issues for appeal. 
This is done through pretrial motion work and by objecting during the trial itself. If neither of these things are done on behalf of the defendant at the appropriate time, then any neglected appellate issue may be considered waived or abandoned and cannot be considered by any appellate court. Instead, the appellate issue becomes ineffective assistance of counsel, wherein the appellate lawyer is saying, the trial lawyer should have done this and that, and they didn't. So the defendant didn't get a fair trial. That's a particularly tough road to hoe as far as getting an appellate court to agree and sending it back for a retrial. As a short aside, when I was in law school, I joined the legal clinic of the law school to get some practical experience while I was a student. And the criminal division was run by an attorney named Richard Kling, who unwittingly, to me at least, had assisted in preparing one of Gacy's last appeals. And this particular appeal raised the issue of ineffective assistance by Gacy's trial lawyers. I, of course, alerted my father to this fact, and he, of course, was irritated by the concept of me being taught by a guy who was claiming that him and Sam hadn't done their job. The reality is that in a death penalty case, every conceivable issue is presented, including saying that my lawyer screwed me. This, of course, didn't provide any solace to my father and made for an awkward situation for me while I was in the clinic. It really is a small world. Back at the Displains Police Department, they continue to hunt for any clues that will help them locate Rob Peace's remains. This includes following up on some of the information that the creep relayed to Detective Adams in one of his confessions. In particular, the confession that Gacy made when he was being transported to Cook County Jail by Tovar and Adams which was that he had disposed of Rob Peace's clothing by dropping them off at a Goodwill or Salvation Army drop box at either Harlem and Irving or Lawrence and Cumberland, which are two very busy intersections located on the northwest side of Chicago. Oddly, I read to you the fourth statement given by Gacy to Tovar in the last episode, verbatim. And if you can't recall, Tovar's statement never made any mention of this part of the conversation taking place with Adams in the squad while transporting Gacy to the jail. I note this particular omission by Tovar in his written report because it clearly illustrates the issues that we have raised with respect to the fact that none of these confessions by Gacy were taped by the Displains Police Department and all were merely paraphrased versions drafted by the officers of what they recall Gacy saying. And these confessions, as it stands on December 26th, aside from the planted photo receipt, were the strongest evidence that they possessed against Gacy. And that is a scary thought. So based on this alleged tip given by the creep, detectives Kautz and Adams are dispatched to approximately five different Goodwill locations and two Salvation Army locations, charged with the task of looking through all of the clothes at all of the locations in order to try and locate the items of clothing that Rob Peast was known to have been wearing on the night that he went missing. Upon arrival at the location, officers learned that the last two pickups at the drop boxes were on the 18th and 21st of December. Considering that Gacy was under 24-7 surveillance starting on December 14th, and there was no mention by the men who watched him of Gacy dropping off a bag at Goodwill or Salvation Army during the entire time they surveilled him, this would seem to be a dead end. Based on the fact that they were grabbing his garbage off the curb, you could bet your ass that they would have grabbed anything that he would have dropped at one of the drop boxes. It didn't happen. Plain and simple. 
Nonetheless, the cops did the work. At the first location, they found a pair of pants, which, quote, looked something like, end quote, the ones that Robert Peast wore that fateful night. The officers left the first location with negative results. And then they went to three more Goodwill locations, also ending with negative results. Detective Cowles noted at the end of his report that if in fact Rob Peace's jacket did get dropped into a box and was subsequently placed into one of the stores, the fact that it was a very nice jacket and that it was the Christmas season and that Goodwill sells at very low prices, that the jacket would most likely have been sold immediately and to look at further stores would have been useless. You know who didn't care about the independent thought of officers about the use of manpower and resources? That's right, the man obsessed, Joe Kozenzak. Not only did Kozenzak not care what his officers thought, he went even further on this wild goose chase. When he caught wind of two drop boxes on Cumberland Avenue that had not been picked up in a while, he ordered a city truck to go and get the contents of both boxes and to bring them back to the station. So the city trucks were dispatched and the contents of the boxes were brought back to the station and were picked through piece by piece with negative results, desperate measures. We've already discussed why finding peace body is so important, not only to Kozenzak and the peace, but for Bill Kunkel, because it's hard to try a murder case without a body. But why continue to look for Rob's jacket and clothes after Gacy's already been arrested and has confessed to killing Peast? It seems superfluous, at least to all of those that have no idea that the only link between Gacy and Peast is a planted photo receipt, which is all of the officers that he commands, aside from maybe Detective Adams, his right-hand man. It does not surprise me one bit that Adams was handpicked by Kozenzak for the needle in the haystack search of the Goodwills and Salvation Armies. Because after all, it was in fact Adams who was standing with Kozenzak in front of Gacy's kitchen garbage can, along with evidence tech Humber. Because any other two cops that would have been assigned to this particular task would have been wondering exactly what Kautz was wondering, which is, why in the hell are we doing this? So, yeah, Adams knew about the plant. I have zero doubt about that. And Adams, because he knew about the ticking time bomb known as the photo receipt, knew just exactly how important it was that they find another link between Gacy and Peast. Just in case something went terribly wrong with the photo receipt, like... It gets suppressed as a result of a motion by the defense, or even worse, that the planting of the evidence is discovered. All bases must be covered. Sadly for Kozenzak, this was another swing and a miss. Back at 8213 Somerdale, Dan Genty and the boys are still digging and still uncovering victims' remains. By the end of the workday on the 26th of December, the evidence texts of the Cook County Sheriff's Police have uncovered the remains of 10 victims from John Wade and Gacy's crawl space. And the sad reality is that they are only just getting started. Well, remember, it's not 33, it's 29. 
because the four were from the river. That was with the trial. But there was 26 in the crawl space, one in the shed, one under, uh, near the, uh, you know, the uh, barbecue pit. And the last one, which we had no knowledge of, was underneath the dining room table in the addition, which was, there was no crawl space under. It was just visqueen on the, on the dirt and, uh, and then the joists and then the floorboards. And so how could there be a body there? Well, John was clever, you know, and, uh, and so that's, that was uh, the surprise, but he didn't talk about that. Um, so anyway, uh, no, we just, well, like uh, body number three was at the feet or the head, I forget which it was, of body number one. And so we found those bones, and so we just got him. And then we thought we were done. But I figured, well, maybe I better squish around in this dirt here a little bit underneath. And I'm feeling around, and my fingers went in the eye sockets of a skull that was there. Oh, chief, we got some more here, you know. And so we dug that one out. And then we figured, well, we better check a little further. And here's another one, okay. So there was four bodies there like this laying in that ground. And then, of course, uh, then we broke into two teams. Uh, and and some guys went over and started doing the, uh, tr the other trench where there was five, two, and three, like that. And so as we would uncover one and start working on it, we gave it a number. So the numbers don't necessarily mean anything except that that's the, the next discovery, so to speak. And uh, we excavated where that hair was. Actually, what happened was, um, I think it was the second day we were there digging Chief Dobbs comes to me in the morning when we're starting getting ready to work, and he kneels, squats down, and he says, Danny, here's a, a diagram that Casey just drew uh, from memory for us here. Does this look like it's possible to you? And I thought, yeah, I think so. And it was pretty accurate, actually. And But they, when they built this house in those days, what they would do is they'd put... Um, I guess, well, I don't remember gravel. They would just put tar paper over the ground. That was to keep the moisture from coming up. And uh, and so you would you got to the point where you could look at the ground and you could see it wasn't quite level. And you'd look at this tar paper, and if it was ripped up, you pretty well knew that there was something there. And uh, so we just sort of went along kept digging, poking around, and when we'd find soft ground, we'd know, and uh, and then we'd go like that, you know. And so where the three were together, we found a beautiful belt buckle some kid had. I think that kid was from Michigan. Um, I don't know too much about the identities of these people. They were just body numbers so-and-so to me, you know. Um, there was one where there was two bodies together. They were like like wrapped together and buried in this kind of a more of a vertical hole. They were bent over each other. And um, those kids, supposedly two boys, were killed at the same time. He had the two. He had them both 
handcuffed or whatever he had. So he had one in one room and one in the other, and he kills the one kid and then uh, goes to the other kid and says, okay, come with me, and he shows him his dead friend, and he goes, now it's your turn. Can you imagine the terror these kids had? Um, and so anyway, I think there's a picture of me with my legs spread apart and working on these two bodies, you know. And uh, for me, one of the oddest times was uh, Christmas Eve. Carol's family has a tradition of Christmas Eve, everybody comes, and we all have this kind of a big Christmas Eve party, and they exchange goofy gifts or whatever it is, you know. And Of course, this year it was our turn to host this thing. And uh, I walk in the door, and my brother and the whole family, Merry Christmas, Dan. Back in my father's second-story office in Oak Park, he sits quietly, a single desk lamp emanating a soft glow of light drafting multiple motions that will be filed in three days' time at Gacy's next court date on December 29th. The wheels of justice have begun to turn, as the case of the people of the state of Illinois versus John Wayne Gacy is now officially underway. It will be 13 torturous months that the victims' families will have to wait before a jury is impaneled, and the trial of the century begins. A lot of things have to happen before we get to that day, all of which we will get into, starting on the next episode of Defense Diaries. So it's time for thank yous once again to my main man, Darren Wood, the EP of the show, the man who makes all the magic happen. Thank you to Tross. Orlewski and Ryan Gack, our music masters who make all the fantastic music that you hear on a weekly basis. And also to uh, a new member of our team, Corey Ridings, who's been producing some amazing art for us that y'all start seeing on some of our merch that will be coming in the very near future. Also to, also to Alex Carver, who's our graphic design guy, who does amazing work for us as well. And finally, to my wife, Allison, who just keeps crushing it and doing all the things that need to be done in order to keep this show on the map. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And finally, and last but definitely not least, to all of our patrons out there, we love you so much. Thank you so much for your support. We love to see those emails come in. It makes our hearts swell with joy. Uh, additionally, to you, the listeners out there, you guys are so important to us because without you, I just be an old man talking about an old case. Talking to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. You know, know exactly where the body's at.